1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll begin in verse number 11. If this morning you would turn away from the things of this world, if you would value Jesus as of bearing greater beauty, holding greater value than anything in this world, it's what the Bible calls repentance. Value Jesus above the things of this world. If you would repent of your sins and believe on Jesus as the only begotten Son of God who lived without sin, who died in our place, was buried and rose again on the third day, the Bible promises that we are by that faith washed in his blood, cleansed, sanctified, justified, such that at the end of our life, when God looks upon us, he sees not our sin, but the perfect righteousness of his son. With the promise of heaven comes the gift of his indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God comes to abide within the body of the blood-bought believer. And we are made citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. In fact, that citizenship is a major point of focus. It's a major feature in the book of First Peter. For the past several weeks now, we've talked about, we've made observations about this reality that this world is not our home. We don't belong here. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, the positive side of that is that we are able to rejoice in that, that there is something yet to come for us, that we have become subjects of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. There are tremendous benefits that come with this kingdom's citizenship. We are heirs with Christ of all the glories of heaven in this kingdom. The downside is we're displaced for the time being. We're in this awkward place of not belonging, in a land that is not our own. And the challenges of that are increased by the reality that just because this land is not our home does not mean in any way, shape, form, or fashion we don't bear with real obligations, responsibilities, and expectations in this life. We're existing alongside those whose citizenship is here, but our responsibilities look very much like those around us. One of the functions of the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning is to remind us that we don't get to shirk earthly responsibilities just because our citizenship belongs to a heavenly kingdom. In fact, this passage stands at the head of a more extensive passage that deals with our posture toward the world around us, one of submission. In the case of this morning's passage, submitting to governing authorities, and the passages to come, submitting to masters or employers for wives, submitting to husbands, mutual submission within the context of a nuclear family. Our posture here is one of submission. And for that reason, it is incredibly countercultural. And this will be a jagged gospel pill for some to swallow. But it is a gospel pill nonetheless. First Peter chapter 2 Verses 11 and following is our text. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Peter, writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, records beginning in verse 11. Dear friends, 
I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it's God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. As God's slaves live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. I want you to think for just a moment about the history of the early church. How fruitful, how effective as a strategy for kingdom advancement, adherence to these principles were for that early church. Think about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire made up the majority of the civilized world in the first century. In fact, for many centuries, the Roman Empire made up the vast majority of the civilized world. And around 30 AD, 30 years uh, after the birth of Jesus, or 30 years after the year zero, that's another discussion for another day, they crucified Jesus. The only begotten Son of God who was without sin at the behest of the Jewish establishment nailed the hands and feet of the only begotten Son of God to a wooden cross and, and hung him up outside the city of Jerusalem. That was the way the Roman Empire regarded Christianity in its most formative state. Within a few years, they would begin the practice of imprisoning those who preached about the resurrection of Jesus, who preached, as the book of Acts says, in the name of Jesus. And by the mid-60s of that first century, Nero, the emperor of Rome, would condone the execution of the very apostle that writes the letter we're reading from this morning. Both Peter and Paul would die under his leadership, and many Christians would be staked to poles around the city of Rome, doused in fuel, and lit ablaze alive in order to light the streets of the city of Rome. That's the way the Roman Empire regarded Christianity. The close of the New Testament period comes around 95 or 96 of the first century when John the Apostle, the beloved disciple, receives a revelation of Jesus in exile on the Isle of Patmos. He is there as a function of government-sanctioned persecution within the Roman Empire. The first century closes with, with Christians being severely persecuted. Nero was the worst persecutor of Christians in that first century. Domitian wasn't far behind at the close of the first century. In fact, in the book of Revelation, he is regarded as the incarnation of Nero, the return of Nero, the beast who is dead but is alive again. That is Domitian who serves in such a, a way to parallel the, the leadership of Nero for his torture and persecution of Christians. And in spite of that, in spite of that, there was no influence enjoyed by the church. There was no favor for the church in the Roman Empire. By the early 300s, Christianity had become a dominant religious influence in the Roman Empire. And by 392, Christianity became the state-sanctioned religion of the empire. 
Now, there's a conversation to be had about the great detriment that came to the gospel and the state's sanctioning of Christianity as its state religion. But you have to take note of this great sweeping change that took place virtually all over the civilized world as Christianity moved from the kind of thing you would be killed for, the kind of thing that represented this minuscule minority, to this monumental movement that had turned the world upside down. They saw, they experienced that kind of gospel advancement, that kind of gospel movement, patterning their lives after the teaching of this passage, which by the way is modeled after the, the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a countercultural look at the advancement of the kingdom. I say that because our mechanisms for advancing our agendas, our mechanisms for in so many ways, at least in our mind, advancing the kingdom, look nothing like what Peter describes in our passage. In the world, in our world, in our culture, and in our country, if you wish to get ahead, you may do so by power, by might, by force, by political influence, by protest, by throwing a fit in general, that may serve your advantage in our culture. But that is not the way the kingdom of Jesus moves forward. In fact, Peter describes something altogether different. Look at verse number 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. The imperative there is pretty straightforward. Abstain from fleshly desires. In other words, don't give yourselves over to the lust or desires of the flesh. Pursue holiness in your life. The language that Peter uses here reminds us of the content of so much of 1 Peter, ground we've now covered. He refers to us as strangers and temporary residents, reminding us again that this world is not our home. But being careful to note in the verses that follow after that we still bear real responsibility in this life. Remember how we talked about these two, two different positions or status that might be enjoyed within these Roman provinces. In Pontius, Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia, in Asia Minor in general, there were two classes of people. There were those who were full citizens of the empire who enjoyed all of the rights and privileges, the protections that came with citizenship, and they shared in the responsibilities that might be expected of citizens. They paid taxes and they contributed to the well-being of society and may have volunteered in a variety of different ways. And then there were those who were there bearing with all of the responsibilities and obligations of citizenship with none of its privileges, with none of its protections, and with none of its rights. That is the class that we most closely identify with, given the fact that this world is not our home. Our citizenship is not here. We are with that class of people who suffer under all of the responsibilities and obligations and challenges that come with life in the here and now, with none of the rights and privileges and protections customary to earthly citizenship. That may not be very refreshing or encouraging to you this morning, but that is our posture as the people of God. There will be times for you when because of your faith in Jesus, you will be called upon or expected to forego your rights, privileges, and protections because of your faith in Jesus. And Peter helps us now to know how we're to cope with this experience. I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Here it is, verse 12. 
conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I'm going to show you something about this verse. I think that what Peter is describing here is more than an isolated situation where someone as a Christian is accused of being an evildoer. It seems that what Peter is describing here is a scenario wherein Christians in general in Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia, and Bithynia are referred to as a blanket statement as evildoers. In Antioch, they were first called Christians. In Asia Minor, they are called evildoers. And so Peter is saying here, this is the way you conduct yourself in order that you don't do anything to contribute to negative stereotypes of Christians. And I would say as a blanket statement in terms of drawing application from these verses, don't do anything in your life, especially sensitive to the unique nature of our culture, that would contribute to negative stereotypes when it comes to Christians or the message of the gospel. Sometimes I, I see things in social media, I hear people say things and I think, no wonder the world thinks we're all a bunch of bumbling idiots. Don't do anything that contributes to negative stereotypes, misrepresentations of the message of the gospel. When you're faced with this scenario where people are referring to you as an evildoer or making an unjust accusation against you, this is what you must do, Peter says. And the command is clear in verse 12. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, among those who know nothing of the gospel, who have no foundation whatsoever, among those who make accusations against you, live honorably. Peter's reminding us here that even under false accusation, we are to conduct ourselves honorably. And the outcome of our honorable conduct before those who have wrongly accused us may have a tremendous impact for the advancement of the kingdom. Look at the way verse 12 concludes. So, so that those, they will, those who accuse you, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation or the day of his return. If you'll be persistent in living honorably, even before those who may wrongly accuse you, it may be that the outcome of their exposure to your faithfulness to God would be their own salvation so that on the day of his coming, they might glorify our God alongside us. There are two great examples of this in the New Testament. Two really remarkable examples of this in the New Testament. The first of those would be Stephen. Remember Stephen, faithful deacon? Stephen preaches in Acts chapter 7. You let a deacon preach, and you get the longest chapter in the book of Acts. Stephen preaches the history of Israel as a nation. And at the end of that sermon, he declares before his accusers the message of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And the Bible says that rather than responding in faith to that message, they took up stones and began to hurl them at Stephen, even to his death. But the Bible also tells us that in that moment of great agony, in that moment of rejection, in the waning moments of his life, Stephen looked to heaven and prayed for the forgiveness of those who cast the stones that killed him. And in the first verse of the next chapter, Acts chapter 8 and verse number 1, the Bible says that standing by and consenting to the martyrdom of Stephen was a man named Saul. 
by Acts chapter 9, that man named Saul has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his life is forever changed. I cannot help but draw the conclusion that the heart of Saul, eventually the apostle Paul, was conditioned by that experience of observing the faithful submission of Stephen even unto death, such that he would gladly receive the message of the gospel on the road to Damascus. You know where the other example comes from? It comes from Jesus, who with nails in his hands and feet, looks out across a throng of people who have cried for his crucifixion, and hurls not accusation, he doesn't declare judgment, although it was within his power to do so. He would simply pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I cannot help but to think that many within their crowd, observing the faithfulness of Jesus under great duress, must have had their hearts conditioned to receive the message of the gospel those apostles would preach in their hearing just days later. And the kingdom takes off. What I want to say to you about this passage is that this is a winning strategy for the advancement of the kingdom. This is not a strategy that has been implemented, implemented in mass over the last 50 years when it comes to Western Christianity. But it is the strategy that moved the gospel of Jesus Christ from this fledgling group of adherents to having turned the world on its head and covered the span of the Roman Empire within a couple of hundred years. Listen carefully. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, does not advance by violent protest. It does not advance by sheer force. It does not advance in civil disobedience. It does not advance by political influence or voting blocks. It just doesn't operate this way. The gospel of Jesus Christ advances by a full-hearted reliance on the power of the gospel for the movement of the kingdom. Haven't you observed, listen, think, think with me for a moment. Think about the last 50 years in American political history. It seems that we've pushed so many of our chips as the church into the corner of, of leveraging voting blocks and political influence to see something positive happen in our culture. And, and the opposite has happened. The opposite has happened. If for no other reason, come away from worldly weapons because they simply do not work when it comes to the church. We are no good with worldly weapons in our hands. But when we've been divorced from these things and are entirely reliant on the power of the gospel, there is no end to what Christ might be pleased to do among us. This is a critically important message for us. This is a critically important message for the church in general. It is not by power nor by might that the kingdom advances, but by his spirit saith the Lord. Conduct yourselves honorably, even when falsely accused, and the outcome of your nobility, even under accusation, may have a powerful effect in the hearts of those who witness the accusation and your nobility itself. There is very little, very little substantive work 
that has unfolded in the history of Christianity that did not involve the letting of saintly blood. If we are unwilling to sacrifice our protections, our rights, and our privileges to see the kingdom of Jesus advance, there's a strong likelihood we won't have part in the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus. Look at verse 13. This is the part you really won't like. That has at least been the feedback after two services, right? This, this morning I was leaving the house and, and Bo, the baby boy, is not feeling well this morning and he can be a little clingy when he doesn't feel well. And I was, I was pulling out of the driveway and, and I saw him in the rearview mirror dart out of the house. He had escaped my wife. And I didn't want to stop because I knew then he would come all the way, but I wanted to watch long enough to make sure that she was aware that he had escaped, you know. And he's running pajamas on and, 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 and no socks and no shoes. And it's cold this morning. Mouth gaped open. I couldn't hear him, but I know he was screaming and those tears running down. And he got about 20 yards out and those feet got cold. And he just sort of made a loop. He sort of dried up and he sort of began to make a loop. And he ran back in the house as quickly as he ran out of the house. And I thought, that's probably how they're going to react to this sermon. Here, here we're at a place where for a lot of us, we should be discomforted by what Peter says here if we're listening clearly to what the Bible calls us to. Listen to verse 13. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. This is who we're to be. This is, again, a winning strategy. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether emperor or governor commissioned by the emperor himself. We celebrate defiance in our culture. We celebrate the violation of these principles. With, with virtually every national championship or world championship that is now won, we wait for the fallout to find out who it is that won't show up at the White House gathering because of their political position. And that will no doubt be celebrated for conviction by whatever side is not represented in the Oval Office at that particular moment. Uh, if I was the president and I invited you to the White House and you didn't come, you'd get audited every year for the rest of your life. That's what I'd do to you make you pay. We celebrate that. We make a big deal out of that. We applaud that, all oh, the conviction involved in that kind of thing. That's completely inconsistent with what we see in our passage. In, in recent days, I've seen video clips of church gatherings chanting clever replacements for vile cuss words and clapping along to the rhythm and cadence of those vulgar chants in church gatherings. That's not of God. That's satanic. This passage calls us, whether we like it or not, to make ourselves subject to the human authorities that God in his providence has positioned in a place of power. Some like to say of the passage, well, they don't know what kind of leadership we have. Need I remind you that Peter is writing during the reign in all likelihood of Nero who not only was as bad as they get, he kills Peter eventually. It's not long after First and Second Peter until Peter himself dies as a subject of Nero, the emperor. And yet the command again and again of our, of our passage is to submit to these human authorities, citing specifically the position of emperor, and then closes the passage with the imperative, honor the emperor. 
It just doesn't, it just doesn't matter what they've done or who they are. We're, we're not to quibble with these kinds of things. To seek justification for our misdeeds, but to follow closely after the teaching of the Scripture. We don't do well at discipling our children in these principles. It, it used to be that if, if, if the school called, I can tell you this, if the school called Lynn Stevens, my daddy, and said, I got your boy here in the office, let me tell you what he did. He would beat me from the school to the house. But now the principal gets a lecture on the ways the kid was right and they're in the wrong and all kinds of justifications for their behaviors. Now, some of y'all are guilty of that. And I don't know a whole lot about raising children. I know less today than I did yesterday. And I suppose that will continue to be the case for quite some time. When I, was, when I first began preaching ministry, I knew everything there was about raising children and family and marriage. I didn't have any children at that point, but now I know almost nothing. But I do know this, all of your children and my children are born liars. And it would behoove you to heed the counsel of those human authorities positioned in those supervisory positions, if for no other reason than to disciple them in the reality of observing the authority in their life. This is breaking down at every point in life. You let a kid not get the spot on the team that he wants or not make the team, close the doors on the car, and you begin to lambast the coach. That coach doesn't know what he's doing. You don't know anything about that. You're better than that kid. You ought to be in that position. That's, that's, that's the way we operate now. And, and I'm telling you, so, so much of, of what plagues us as a society, and we're a bigger picture now than just the church, but so much of what plagues us as a society is the inability to submit ourselves to real authority. It's unbecoming of a Christian, out of step with the message of the gospel, and a losing strategy when it comes to the advancement of the kingdom. Submit to every human authority, Peter says, because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those, who, those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. This says something of the function of government, right? Two primary functions. These aren't the only functions of government, but two of the primary functions of government are to punish evil and to reward good. We do a certain amount of punishing evil in our governance, not a whole lot of rewarding good. In fact, there seems to be a bent toward incentivizing what I would regard as evil and therefore disincentivizing that which is good. But perhaps that's a conversation for another day. What I want you to see here is the role that these governors are playing. This is certainly not a governor in the sense that we think in our governmental structure. These are not leaders over states in state capitals. These are those much closer to the front lines. In fact, I would put this office of governor as it's listed here in verse number 14, somewhere much closer to law enforcement officers on the local or even state level uh, than to those who rule from state houses and state capitals within our society. And here we're commanded again to honor those who've been given these responsibilities to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Even at that level of government, there ought to be some observance, some submission to, a great deal of submission to their authority over our lives. Now again, we're back at this place of seeking for justifications and qualifications. I realize that in the same way there are those at the highest levels of leadership that may practice injustice, there are those at the lowest levels of leadership that practice some degree of injustice. 
but there are no such qualifications built into our passage. In fact, in the examples from the New Testament of this principle, as we cited in Jesus and Stephen, both were the victims of great injustice. And both respond with the same kind of gospel submission, glad-hearted humility, and with a concern for the well-being of those who observe them, even over that of themselves. They were esteeming others more highly than themselves in every sense of the command. Here we're commanded that on every level we are to make ourselves subject to these governing authorities. Verse 15 is probably the verse that I have cited more than any others when counseling with brother pastors or have recited in my heart during troubled times. There have been a few instances of accusation having been made against me over the course of time. And this uh, verse has often been an encouragement to me. In verse 15, Peter says, for it's God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing what is good. When a false accusation is made against you, you don't have to wonder how to respond. Everyone always wants to know what God's will is. Well, finally, you have it. When an accusation is made against you, you're not obligated to defend yourself. In fact, it's often unwise to do so. But with your head down and your hand to the plow, persist in doing what God has called you to do, time and truth are on your side. There's a snowball effect when rumors or accusations break out. That's the way it works. Sinful people tend to get excited about knowing something that someone else doesn't know. And so they'll forward the gossip or the rumor or the accusation. And then because we are so depraved, there's a certain glib excitement that this fate has befallen someone else and not me. There's a certain evil sense of superiority that comes along with that. So it's natural to expect that there would be, in the beginning phases of an accusation, some degree of, of growth, of movement within that conversation. But time and truth are on your side. Over the course of time, faithfully plotting, persisting in the performance of God's will. Your character can stand the test of time. Your reputation is restored over time, silencing the ignorance of foolish people by doing what is right. Again, we just don't do well fighting with the weapons of this world. You begin to engage in that level of debate, defending yourself against every accusation that comes along against you, that's all you'll ever do is defend yourself against accusations coming against you. It used to be less of a thing. It used to be the petty things that happened within church life. I come from an established church background and anything and everything could come up, could pop up and could be a challenge or an issue. But now there's so many bombs being lobbed from outside the church just for holding traditional biblical values. There's so many bombs being lobbed. You can't respond to all of that kind of stuff. But with your head down, hand to the plow, you press on. Time and truth are your friends. Silence the, the, the ignorance of foolish men by doing what is right. So Peter says here, we're to live honorably. We're to submit to governing authorities, whether we want to or not, without qualification and without exception. And then thirdly, we're to live free. Look at verse 16. As God's slaves live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor 
the emperor. As God's slaves live as free people, at least a couple of things are intended by Peter's statement here. One, it's a reminder to us that although we have been freed from the bondage of sin, we have been enslaved in service to God. In other words, we're not casting off all restraint, living our lives free of any care or concern for the command of God. In fact, quite the opposite. Our concern, our preeminent concern, our primary concern is that we honor God in all of our ways as his servants. Living as free people surely intends that we have to some extent been freed from that deep sense of obligation in this world. Remember weeks ago we talked about watching the news cycle from another nation and how we feel that report differently than we do news of what's happening in our own home country because our citizenship is not there. It's not that there's so much a sense of detachment. It's just that the news doesn't carry as much weight. Our citizenship is elsewhere. If you've been watching the news over the past week, no doubt you've been monitoring or at least hearing something about what's happening along the Ukrainian border and the potential of a Russian invasion there. Here's what I can tell you. You would be watching those reports more closely and you would be feeling the weight of those reports more deeply if you were a citizen of Ukraine this morning. You would be more concerned about the potential for that invasion, but your citizenship is not there. Yes, we bear certain obligations, certain responsibilities, but in so many ways, we have been freed from this overwhelming, abiding concern for the things that we see so clearly because we belong to a kingdom that is unseen by this world. That means for us that no matter what happens around us, we're able to live with gladness of heart and joy. In fact, Peter doesn't so boldly make the declaration, you are free people. He says, live as free people. In light of the context of 1 Peter, we might observe that whether you're disadvantaged or oppressed or even in a position of servitude, your joy, your gladness of heart is not dictated to you by the circumstances of your life. Even in your earthly oppressed condition, you have known the truth and the truth has made you free. You are free in Christ. So there's an abiding gladness and joy in our hearts. Peter says, live as free people. But he's also careful to note that we're never to use our freedom as a way to conceal evil. There have been all sorts of ungodly things that have happened over time under the guise of Christian liberty. And there is a sense in which over the course of time, we do grow in grace and thereby grow in liberty. Almost 100% of the time when I run into someone who's very legalistic, who's, who's very rigid in their practice of the faith, they're almost always young believers, maybe not young in age, but they're young in their journey with Jesus, and they're just zealous of heart, and they're looking for ways to give expression to their newfound faith in Christ. There are things that I was much more convinced and convicted of in the early days of my walk with Jesus than I am today. There is a certain sense of liberty that comes with growing in grace and maturity. There is Christian liberty that ought to be enjoyed, that whether on our best day or our worst day, we rejoice in the notion that our salvation is bound up in the finished work of Christ and not the works that we have done. There is freedom and liberty that comes with that realization. And it's not that we realize that in a moment, it's that we grow in that realization over time, shaped and formed, molded and made over by the work of God's Holy Spirit. 
But there has never been a time, and there will never be a time, when Christian liberty can rightly be exercised to violate the clear command of God for our life. Don't ever use Christian liberty or your liberty in any expression as a cloak or cover for evil. Then in verse 17, Peter gives us these four very short, very straightforward imperatives. I think verse 17 in some ways functions as a summary statement for all that has been said thus far. Honor everyone. How do we interact with everyone around us so that we don't contribute to negative stereotypes? How do we interact with those around us so that we don't bring accusation against ourselves? How do we interact with everyone, with all people, such that we silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing what is right? You honor everyone. Without prejudice, without discrimination, without exception, without qualification, honor everyone. How do we interact with the church, with those closest to us within our faith family? Peter says simply, love the brotherhood. We love everyone, right? We love our neighbor as ourselves. That's customary for us as the people of God. But there is a close and special kinship, a certain bond that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a special love, a special affection that exists among us for no other reason than that we are bound together as one in the body of Christ. How, is, how do we react or what is our posture toward God in light of our present circumstance? Peter says, fear God. With reverence and awe, with respect for the one who's placed powers and principalities in their positions of power, we fear the Lord. And then lastly, we honor the emperor. This is a winning strategy. Not that we're distracted by or focused on the things of this world, but that the exclusive aim of our life is to seek the advancement of his kingdom, even at great cost. First year or two of, of, of being in ministry, I was in a preaching conference and, and one of the breakout sessions was to be conducted by a man named Roy Fish. That name probably means very little to many of you, but he's a legend in Baptist life. And I, I was excited to go and hear at that time a, a much older Dr. Fish speak on evangelism and kingdom advancement. He was interacting with some Roman historians and we were talking through the advancement of the kingdom in its early stages, the growth of the church in the Roman empire. And it was asked rhetorically by a historian, but Dr. Fish provided the answer. The question was, how is it that Christianity grew from this fledgling sectarian group to having overwhelmed, toppled the world's greatest empire within a couple of hundred years? This was the answer that was provided. Because in spite of the threat of death, persecution, martyrdom in a variety of fashions, in spite of the loss of life and limb, the church refused to flinch on the notion that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no man may come to the Father except through him. What Dr. Fish said with great eloquence, we could say rather simply here. They kept the main thing, the main thing, and didn't allow themselves to be distracted by the petty and fleeting things of this world. Again, I want you to take note, the kingdom of Jesus does not advance by political influence, 
by civil disobedience, by voting blocks. None of those things function to advance the kingdom. Those are the weapons of this world and they've never fit our hand and they never will. Just observe the past 50 years of American Christian history. We're backing up and not moving forward. But if we divorce ourselves from the weapons of this world and take in our hand a full-hearted reliance on the power of the gospel to see the kingdom advance to the very ends of the world, there is no end to what God might be pleased to do. Therein lies the power, not in us, but the spirit of our God. It is not by power, nor by might, but by the spirit of the Lord, his kingdom advances. May, may our reliance be exclusively on that power, not the petty and fleeting and passing things of this world. Listen, this will break some hearts, but you need to hear it. There will come a day when our country will fall. It will be dust and ashes, but the kingdom of Jesus will remain. Aren't you glad that that's where our citizenship is as followers of Jesus? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for the power of the gospel, for the remarkable example of both our Savior Jesus and that faithful Deacon Stephen at, at embodying, at modeling these principles for us. Help us, God, to be wise in discerning the distinction between submitting to human authorities and being called upon to violate the command of God. Help us to know always where that line is, not to operate out of fear, but with godly wisdom, with the principles of the scripture and the spirit of God in our heart. Help us to be wise and discerning people. Help us to walk worthy of our calling. I doubt there's a soul in this building that hasn't violated in some way, even in recent days, the commands of this passage. So God, we ask that you would forgive us. I pray that we would favor godliness over political expedience, that we would favor the power of your Holy Spirit over the resources of this world. God, I pray that you would make of us a people willing to forego our rights and privileges and protections to see your kingdom advanced. God, I, I pray that you would help us to offer ourselves a living sacrifice, our reasonable service. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.